Well, thank you to our Bible readers. And uh, as I've said, we start a new series today in the book of James, and this will take us through to the end of November. Uh, The book of James is a favourite of many Christians because of all the books in the Bible, it gives the most practical advice on how to live as a Christian. It covers some of the ground we see in the book of Proverbs, uh, just read to us, but it is more direct and less general. This series is called The Christian Life. Uh, Beneath the surface of practical advice, James shows a deep understanding of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that shouldn't surprise us uh, for two reasons. First, one has to trust God to live well before him Uh, And that is what wisdom is, uh, living well before God, fulfilling his desires for us, living in ways that please him, ways that work for us because we're working as our creator made us to work. When we trust God like James does, we're running on the right fuel and heading in the right direction. The second reason is that this letter was most likely written by James, the younger brother of Jesus, who we also meet in the book of Acts as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, This James was a son of Mary and Joseph. He grew up with Jesus. James no doubt heard and saw some of Jesus's earthly ministry. His themes and phrasings are like those of Jesus. And by the time we meet James in Acts, he had clearly won the respect of the early Christians. James does not appear to have traded off his family connection. Nowhere in this letter does he talk about Jesus as his brother or claim any special authority from that connection. And to me, that speaks well of James. In a world then and now where leaders claim any advantage they can, we have someone who not only urges humility, but also lives it. The only authority James claims is the authority that comes from being a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. From this knowledge of Jesus and his service as a leader of the church in Jerusalem, James has some advice he wants to pass on. Chapter 1 is an introduction where James touches on some of the issues he'll develop later in the letter. These include patience, persevering through suffering, avoiding the temptation of riches, living humbly, controlling our tongues, and finally living out our faith in acts of love and service. But before we consider that advice, let's just think about what James trusted about God. What have we seen in the passage read today that tells us about James's faith? Well, James knew that God listens. James says we may ask God for what we lack. James trusts God to give generously. He sees God as the source of all wisdom. James had good parents who no doubt taught him a lot about God, but the wisdom they passed on was the wisdom of God not their own homespun wisdom. And and that's a good reminder to the parents among us. James shows us God is approached through faith or trust in the character and goodness of God. It's commitment, not words, that matter. 
James says that God offers eternal life to those who love him. And this shows that he knows why Jesus lived and died, and he knows the gospel. That underlies all his teaching in this letter. James says God cannot be tempted. He is above temptation. And he touches on the nature of sin as a movement away from God, a rejection or rupture uh, that gives birth to death, which, if you think about it, takes us right back to the first chapters of Genesis, where we see that we were made for life, not death. Death came into human life because of sin, and James knows that Jesus has done a lot. He's done all that's needed to deal with sin and death. And finally, in our section today, James says that God is the source of every good and perfect gift and is happy to be known as our Father in heaven and is unchangeable and is the source of life. He is a good creator God. And that's rather a lot of theology for a practical guide to the Christian life, isn't it? We see that the Christian life comes from a knowledge of and trust in God. James does not present this as, this is what you need to know and believe about God. But the substance of his faith is there, almost as assumed or necessary knowledge for anyone who wants to live out the life James presents to us in this letter. So my first message today is that we should not be deceived by the apparent simplicity and practicality of this letter. It springs from a deep knowledge of God and therefore can be trusted. But also, as we will see in a couple of weeks, one of the biggest issues that comes out of this book of James is his statement in the next chapter that faith by itself, not accompanied by action, is dead. Over the centuries, many have tried to set James up in opposition to the Apostle Paul, who was the great champion of being right with God by faith alone. And we'll see that that is a misreading of James. But at this stage, it's good to see the fundamental importance of faith to James and the basis and nature of that trust and the existence of sin as something that needs to be dealt with It won't be wiped away by good deeds. So we see uh, the the, the start here uh, of James's faith, and then uh, he comes to explain how to live that out. But let's just go back to the beginning of the letter, uh, because it is a letter. Uh, Having identified himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, James addresses the letter to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. The Greek word is diaspora, from which we get dispersed. The 12 tribes probably refer to the 12 tribes of Israel and identifies his initial audience as the true people of Israel in the last days, the last days that began uh, with the resurrection of Jesus. The Jews had been scattered several times since the 8th century BC, But after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christian Jews had, in accordance with the instructions of Jesus, gone out into Judea, Samaria, and wider afield, speaking the good news of Jesus. And it's probably these Christian Jews who James thought of as his first audience. 
And that's important because with that audience, he could assume that they had an understanding of Jewish scripture. There was no need to spell out all the history and theology that underlay his advice. This accounts in part for his ability to maintain a focus on the practical. Uh, these Jewish Christians were facing trials. Initially, they faced persecution from Jews who had not accepted Jesus as the Messiah and saw the Christians as blasphemous. But then increasingly, they faced persecution from the Romans who were distrustful of their social policies of caring for each other uh, and practices like the Lord's Supper with words about eating bodies and drinking blood. As this letter was written to people facing trials, I think we can genuinely feel a connection with them. This pandemic has been nothing but a trial, and there are other substantial challenges facing us with the reordering of world powers and climate change and growing inequality. I don't want to overstate uh, these trials compared to the immediate trials the persecuted churches face in the world today, but neither do I want to talk down what you've been living through. Death and severe illness and, for many, financial hardship stalk us at the door. So how are we to keep going? What advice does James have to help us persevere? When we hear the words, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, we may balk at the idea of trials being a source of joy. But we should not think lightly of the trials that James knew and observed. He may not have seen his brother crucified, but he certainly heard about it. He would have been around when Stephen was stoned to death in Jerusalem. He knew the persecution of Christians undertaken by Paul when he was known as Saul. James also knew of famine, uh, which was really bad in Israel in the mid-40s, uh, mid when this letter was probably written just 10 years or so after Jesus's death. He, he knew plagues and fires swept through overcrowded towns and cities, and he knew the violence and corruption of the Roman army. James is not saying, don't worry, be happy, as if by a supreme act of will we can overcome the suffering and grubbiness of this world. He's saying trials and suffering are real, but there is something that is better. And it comes through being tested. Not tested to fail, but tested to strengthen and purify. James is saying that as we are tested by the challenges of this life, when we hold to our faith, the faith that God gives us, uh, we develop perseverance. And with perseverance comes maturity and completeness. And that maturity and sense of completeness brings a deep abiding joy. Complete, not lacking anything, he says. That's not the same as saying we have everything. A great house, a great career, a great family, all the friends and toys and experiences we could possibly have. To lack anything, uh, sorry, to not lack anything means you don't feel you need anything more than you have. 
that you are not missing out, that life has not somehow passed you by. James is not saying this is just a theoretical possibility for a small minority. He's saying it's what we should all expect, even what many of us already have when we think about it. Maturity, in a sense, I am who God made me to be and, and wants me to be. I am me, and I'm happy with who I am because I know myself in relation to God. I know God when I wake in the morning and when I go to bed at night. I know him when I do things I should not do, and I know him when he gives me things I certainly don't deserve. And I wouldn't be me unless I had dealt with trials and challenges and seen the way that God helps me. And this isn't something that only comes to people with age. There are people in their teens and twenties who certainly have this sense of completeness, that they understand the place of God in their lives and they feel that that is enough. They know who they are. This completeness is not judged by our bank balances or our CVs or ticks on a bucket list. It comes from perseverance. Dealing with relationships that did not get off the ground or work out. Dealing with disappointing results. Dealing with school friends or workplaces that do not live up to expectations. In time, dealing with the multiple losses of ageing. And may I say, learning to live with the challenges of mental health problems that I know some of you experience. It's a pity that Leonie isn't with us on Zoom, although we hope to see her in two weeks' time. She's a wonderful example of someone who has walked with God every day, and she knows how God has helped her through the last 40 years of living with schizophrenia. Her faith has helped her to persevere, and she knows the joy that comes from that. And if that sense of completeness is not where you are at the moment, James offers some very good advice. If any of us lacks wisdom, lacks the ability to live in this world with a sense of completeness, we should ask God, who gives generously to all, without finding fault. And it will be given to us. If we need help, we should ask. We should not suffer in silence. Here is so often in this letter, James channels the advice of his brother in his Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Uh, when we feel unsure or discontented, we could just live with it, perhaps complain to someone who will listen. Or we can talk to the one who can actually do something about it. God himself. Ask God what he thinks of you. You might think, oh, why would I do that? He'll just see my failures or see how much I feel I lack things I want. But what does James say here? God will give generously without finding fault when we ask in faith. 
What God gives us is up to him. But one thing is certain, he will give us a sense of the value he places on us and he will give us the wisdom we need to feel complete and be mature. To deal with the challenges that life throws at us patiently. James's practical advice continues, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And this is not the counsel of the impossible. Most of us have doubts. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had a wobble. He sweated blood and said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. If there's another way but crucifixion, let's take it. But Jesus did not doubt his father was God and was good. He just wasn't too sure of what was happening and he was afraid of what was ahead. But his father gave him what he needed. James urges us to not doubt that there is a God who is good and will give us what we need. And sure, sometimes it takes a while to work out how God is answering that prayer. We saw this with Kate a few months ago as she shared her long experience of infertility. Kate Kate told us she had doubts about whether she would ever have a child and how, but she trusted that God was with her She told us that she grew in faith through those 10 years. The maritime image James uses is not of being bowled over by a big wave from which we can pick ourselves up, but being in the middle of the sea, endlessly being tossed from one way to another. And James says, we don't have to live like that. James calls such a person double-minded, which means unsure or divided, and he's saying... Survival comes from holding on to God with a consistency of purpose and spiritual integrity. And when we hold on to God, we won't be tossed about. One thing that commentators often say about James is that there is no obvious structure. One idea does not flow obviously into another. But I think there is an an emotional flow here from being challenged to look to God for perseverance, completeness and maturity, James then says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. The creator of this universe and us cares about us, not what we have. A believer can be complete and mature and get on top of the challenges of this world, even though he or she loses everything or lives in humble circumstances, for God sees that as a high position. Whereas riches are ephemeral, like flowers, that then channeling the imagery of Jesus' parable of the four soils, James says, the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. In our modern world, that sense of 
humble contentment is so hard to hold on to. Our media and most politicians are all geared towards creating the sense of need, creating expectations, painting pictures of success and happiness. But James is much truer than them. Some of the happiest people I've ever met have been poor villagers and fishermen in Africa. And most of the people I met in my legal career, bankers and corporate leaders, high-powered lawyers, were miserable. Their wealth gave them new completeness or maturity, but it was different for the few Christians among... Sorry, the wealth of the people I worked with gave them neither completeness nor maturity. But it was different for the few Christians among them, as I've mentioned before. I'm not saying the ideal is riches with a Christian faith that adds the spiritual dimension to life. I'm saying that if you have riches, a Christian faith will help you hang on to them lightly and know your completeness comes from your relationship with God and his church. So James can say, in all honesty, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Some of the translations say, happy is the one who perseveres. But you don't have to be happy to be blessed. You can be complete and mature in this life and know that your true happiness lies ahead. When, God, uh, when Jesus gives us the crown of life, uh, a rich image that only a person of faith would really appreciate. Those who receive this are those who love God. James will have a lot to say about how we should show that love through works of love, but at the moment we just need to note that being indifferent to our circumstances is not what James is talking about here. Being content with having nothing is as empty as being content with one, one's riches. Contentment comes from being content with our circumstances, whatever they are, because we place a higher value on God and following his ways. And then James helps us take another step on this Christian life. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away from their own evil desire and enticed. When we face trials, we are tempted to do things our own ways or the ways of the world. We can think thoughts of self-justification Life's hard, I deserve it. Or, well, others do it. And so James helpfully strips that selfishness away and calls it sin, the rejection of God and the opposite of wisdom. James closes this opening with a reminder who, who God is. Verse 16, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The reasons we can live life the way that 
James lays out before us is because God loves us. He's generous in his love and his gifts. We need not doubt that because God does not change. He is gracious. As Baz talked about a few weeks ago, when we trust, we are recreated. We are born again and become the first fruits of all his creatures. We are signs of what God will do in all his humanity. Even at this early stage, we can see the main message emerging of drawing on our trust in God and his promise to help. We are to take our place as the first fruits in this new creation, living the Christian life, which is a life of patience, humility, service, and a profound sense that it is God who makes us complete. It is God who makes us whole. I don't often set homework, but in the coming week you might like to talk to God about how complete your life is. Work through the things James talks about here and ask God who gives generously without finding fault. Amen.